0: So, uh, still going through Psalm, uh, 119 and, uh, figured out if you do it in eight verses, it takes about 22 Sundays to do it. Who, oh yeah, I was talking with Dennis about that. I wonder how many weeks that is. I said it's 22, you know, but it's, it's, uh, I always say it, it's my favorite Psalm and how could it not be? You ever read a commentary on Psalm 119? it's typically like three or four hundred pages it's its own book in and of itself but uh, we're going to be starting in uh, 119 verses 25 to to 32 and it's interesting how in this passage it changes uh, drastically you can start to see the buildup with the passage before with the princess plotting against him not to be put to shame, to have counselors that, you know, your testimonies are my counselors. You know, but now you see that in the very first verse of 25, it starts with, My soul clings to you, O Lord, or clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me teach me your statutes make me understand the way of your precepts that was alarming when I put my phone in sometimes with the screen on it starts pushing all kinds of buttons so if you get random text from me it's my pocket not me (laughs) Well, we'll start again when I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. So we start with verse 119, um, uh, verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. This portion of the psalm starts with the psalmist in great despair and depression from the inmost depths of his being. His soul is bowed down to the lowest point on the ground in the dust from which he was created. We can compare it to the heartbreak of Job, begging his creator to return him to the dust. This was a sign of mourning, likened to wearing sackcloth with dust upon the head while sitting on a heap of ashes, and it was usually mourning in repentance. How many times does it say, repent in sackcloth and ashes? Clearly, the root of this sorrow can be likened to a lack of understanding and a small weak heart in need of the grace of God. Psalm 14 um, or Psalm Romans 3:10 to 12 says as it is written none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for God all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one and uh, keep in mind that's quoting the psalms if if you know that genuine repentance comes from our responsibility and accountability of our own personal sin against a just, holy, and loving God. And, you know, a lot of times we, we mourn for things in this world, right? But we can't repent for things in this world. But I see that happen. I see that get changed. Oh, this world is so fallen. I'm so sad. We cannot repent on behalf of a fallen world, but we can repent from our own personal sin by the grace of God because when we put our focus on the fallen world then it's not me that's the problem it's the world there's nothing wrong with me if you want a one-way road to self-righteousness that's the way to do it and then it says give me life according to your word In his sorrow for his own personal sins, he makes a plea for mercy based upon the grace of God. He asks for life from the author, giver, and taker of life. Acts 3.15. His plea is rooted in trust wrought in the, the faithfulness of God according to his word. Has God ever spoken life and it never came about? It's a rhetorical question. Of course not. If Jesus can call Lazarus from the grave by name, how much more can he revive a soul that is bowed down in utmost sorrow, clinging to the dust? God can quicken or revive a soul in the dust in the same way he formed man from the dust and breathed into him. In the same way, we as Christians have the Holy Spirit within us, given us new life, and restoring the image of God marred by the wickedness of sin. That's a pretty distinct advantage. That doesn't negate the fact that has anybody here's uh, soul ever clinged to the dust before? Wow, <laughs> uh, that's when you get to really understand who God is and what he does. That's when faith is tested and tried. When you get to see the faithfulness of God. It's in fact, I, I don't think there's not anybody in the Bible who has been used mightily by God that has not been infl- afflicted in one way or, or another their whole life. Uh, Verse 27, make me understand the way of your precepts and I will meditate on your wondrous works. Oh, wait, no, that's, I knew I was, when I told of my ways, I got my notes mixed up. I knew that right away. I got mine on sticky notes. But don't worry, guys, I finally bought a computer, so I'll be typing them up soon. I'm a, what would you call it, a, a, not a tech-savvy millennial. It's very weird. I know it is. You know, but when I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. The psalmist is sharing his ways, the course of life he is traveling based upon his moral character. That's what that means in regards to way or ways. This certainly looks like an intimate relationship rather than some superficial religious obligation. This shows a trust in the mercy of God. Could you imagine telling him your ways? Because keep in mind, our ways are not his ways. His ways are true, our ways are false. So it's bearing all to God. Commit your ways to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. Psalm 37, 5. He is shown faith in the fact that when we speak to God from our inmost being, He hears and does answer according to His perfect timing and wisdom. Psalm 138, 3. On the day I called, you answered me, my strength of soul you increased. And that, that, that's on the day, that's instantaneous. You don't say give me life according to your word and he says I'll do it to you in two months or maybe tomorrow. If you have faith in who God is, it's instantly. It's instant restoration. But we have feelings that kind of get in the way, don't we? An unchanging, incommunicable incommunicable characteristic of our God is his omnipresence. He is present when our soul is clinging to the dust. He is present when we tell him of our ways. He is even present when we would try to hide from him. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? Anybody know which psalm that's from? 139, verse seven. We serve an ever-present God who relentlessly pursues us and desires reconciliation, regeneration, and sanctification he never tires and even perceives our thoughts from afar approach him tell him of your ways he will answer and is more than willing to teach and that same word for teaching if you remember uh, early on in this psalm had to do with a shepherd with a goad that's more of a way of correcting and guiding with a staff it's not exactly a very gentle way of teaching it's saying if i am wrong correct me by necessary means let's see you know so it's asking for discipline teaching and discipline rather than uh, gentleness this is the second time the psalmist asks god to be his teacher asking god to teach him what god has laid down we have a great privilege to receive the only true wisdom from above, from the Most High God. May we constantly ask and seek His wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And then we go with verse 27 Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate. On your wondrous works. Or, yeah. I wrote it down wrong on my note and I still corrected myself. So, <laughs> uh, but the pride and arrogance of man to think that he can understand what God has appointed to be done apart from the counsel of God is pure foolishness. Job 32 8, but it is the spirit in man. The breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. Now that the psalmist has spoken of his ways, he is asking for discernment in following the ways of God. This is one of the hardest things to do for man because it is a trade of wills—my way for His way. You remember that age-old saying, "My way or the highway." That doesn't work with God. <laughs> An acknowledgement of a lack of understanding. I know nothing, O Lord, apart from you. Teach me and help me understand how to follow you and you alone. Psalm 25, 4 and 5. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. So he asked for understanding. And then he says, and I will meditate On your wondrous works to think and meditate upon the wondrous works of God the psalmist is most likely meditating on how God made the covenant with Abraham and through many generations delivered Israel out of bondage to Egypt through wonders and established them in the land he promised to give to them God did not show signs and wonders without a purpose. They testified to the supremacy of the Most High God, and not only that, but His faithfulness, patience, steadfast love, and mercy. Think of the wondrous works God has wrought in the Bible and in your life. Meditate on them, and you will see no other response than gratitude, trust, faith, and worship. God's wondrous works are His ways and reveal wondrous things about his character. You ever think about that when you think about how He worked in creation to redeem us to Himself from the fallenness to where we are today? How He fit everything together perfectly in His sovereign will? How could that be nothing less than wondrous? You know, the supernatural, that's parting the sea. Delivering technically a slave race from the most powerful world power without weapons. Have you seen that happen? And then judging all their false gods in the process too, because that's what he was doing with those plagues. The purpose of it was to show them who the real true God was. The real true one and only God. Verse 28 My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. The heaviness of the sorrow on the soul of the psalmist is so great that within the next breath of his first plea, he is crying out to the Lord once more. His soul melts away and can be compared to the words of Psalm 22, verses 14 to 15. Which if anybody knows it, it's kind of like what happened to Jesus on the cross. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my heart or my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Could it be the tendency of his soul to subscribe the false ways that brings about this deep sorrow? Of the soul? I think the next verse answers that, but we're gonna get to that next. Can we make a sober assessment of our soul and truly see how much heart surgery is truly needed to bring about healthy spiritual growth? In this humbled state of repentance, of repentance, can trust can we trust God to hear our plea and act by raising us up, strengthening us, strengthening us to endure in the process? This process, I, I do uh, building and stuff, could be likened to a faulty foundation that needs to be redone. Anybody ever experienced that? Personally, in your own house, it's a big headache and a, and a lot of money and labor. A lot of times you just tear down the whole house and build new rather than if your foundation is faulty. That's how bad it can be. <laughs> That's a nothing good, nothing with a good uh, faulty foundation. The faulty foundation needs to be de- demolished chunk by chunk with a jackhammer, then drilled and pinned with rebar, as well as reinforced with rebar. It is a lot of hard work and very messy and loud. But the end result is a foundation that is not quickly shaken. This is what God wants to do to our hearts by his spirit, according to his word, through his grace for his glory alone. But are we willing to allow the great physician to do this to our hearts? It's not something that's delightful. I mean, even real true open heart surgery is not, you don't ever see somebody celebrating doing it. They celebrate that they made it through it, that they survived it, not that they get to have it. They're thankful that they made it through the hope and heart surgery. So it's not easy, but I can guarantee he's going to chip away all the things that don't need to be there to make the foundation even stronger. Verse 29 Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. In asking God to put false ways far from him, the psalmist is recognizing his inability to break away from untruth without the help of divine intervention. He desires God to break him away from that which he so easily clings to, and only God can work this out in his soul. Can't cling to anything else to work that out. Nothing in this world will do it. No person no thing, no attainment, no lack of attainment. He recognizes that his ways are truly false ways apart from God and his true ways. Romans 2, 24 and 25, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonor of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Do you see the correlation there? Truth, lie, giving up to desires? It's something that needs to be guarded against daily, because I can fool myself and justify just about everything, even with the word of God. We call that I of Jesus, though. Do it exegetically. You know. <laughs> Graciously teach me your law. When the psalmist asks God to graciously teach him the law, the scene is that of a superior stooping in kindness to an inferior in bestowing favor by his mere presence and attention paid. Because remember what he said before? When I told of my ways, you answered me. Can we see that when God teaches us, it is always an act of grace? He's teaching us to depart from the lies while at the same time withholding the just punishment of damnation that we deserve. God could only do this and be such a gentle teacher because a ransom has been paid on the cross of Jesus Christ. If we didn't have the cross, it would be one and done. We would be in a perpetual state of fallenness, damned and cursed and alienated from God. As you remember what I said, there is no one who knows God or who seeks after him. That's what the case would have been if we did not have salvation through Jesus. Jesus. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. Verse 30. Recognizing and knowing that his ways are prone to be false, the psalmist desires to take the straight and narrow road, commonly, so commonly less traveled. This speaks of a sincere desire to forsake his ways and follow God. Faithfulness in the Hebrew can connote the idea of moral fidelity. Adhered to truth, why also mean in firmness and security. This is a choice we face many times daily as temptation filled by inner ungodly desires would cause us to go astray. Made aware by recognition and filled by grace, our desires do change, and this is an act that only God can receive his due glory for. When the psalmist says, to set it, to set, you see that? I set your rules, to set. It means to become or resemble. And God is faithful to conform us to the incorruptible image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ from one degree of glory to another. That's what he's saying when I set. He's saying, I want to resemble your roles. And what do God's roles reflect? Who he is. His character is found in the Bible. It declares who he is. If you compare it to any other Set of rules, you'll see just how bad us in our own devices can make things up and try to justify it, and how just how so far away it is from the truth of who God is. We must acknowledge our manner of rule to be deceptive and wrong while trusting. The truth of the incorruptible word of God which testifies to his exceedingly faithful and trustworthy character. But the question is, do we believe God to be faithful in truth except in his wisdom? Or do we lean on our own understanding? Verse 31, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. We started this passage with the psalmist clinging to the dust of death and asking for revival. He pleads again as his heart wastes away in sorrow for strength. Ask for wisdom and redirection while choosing the way of faithfulness and the result is to cling to God. How faithful is our God to restore us from the depths of sorrow? How faithful is he to give us and understanding of who he is to bolster our faith in him. How faithful is he to set us up on the rock and guide us on the right paths that are true? How many times since the creation of the world has he stayed faithful when we were faithless? O Lord, help us to not waver in faith as we cling to your will for our lives. The faithfulness of God is a fire that will provide guidance in the wilderness as we journey to the promised land in eternity to an exceedingly great great inheritance. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord God, unto me. We're talking about the Exodus, if you're just wondering about the pillar of fire. That was... Psalm twenty five verses two and three. O oh my God in you I trust, let me not be put to shame, let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed none who wait for you shall be put to shame, they shall be ashamed who are unwontonly treacherous. Never shall we be ashamed of the gospel in God's ways. We have been forgiven, and we have tasted the sweetness of salvation, and now God has a place for us in his sovereign plan of redemption. Amen. And I just always say, God, how could you be so faithful? It baffles and overwhelms me personally to think of his faithfulness. Verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. What a change from the beginning of this passage to the end as God displays his greatness. We run the race governed by the love of God according to his faithful and true commands. If you have experienced the transformative power of God changing your heart through the gospel of Jesus Christ, you can't but you can't help but be a spectator, but a willing participant with salvation in mind and our great love and faithful God at the finish line. We have no need to spectate in this life because a great cloud of witnesses are cheering us on in the next. This, this isn't a spectator sport that we're in. It's a participation sport that we're in. You can't run a race from the sidelines. It's too much of a crowd. You get lost in it. Hebrews 12:1 and 2. And therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Here goes that word cling again. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So when this is all said and done, we have to search our hearts and ask ourselves, in this great race, from the great gift that was given us, are we spectating or running? Because the term run means to rush. It doesn't mean a nice jog, like, oh yeah, I'm going to do a marathon. I'm talking about a full-on sprint. Keep that in mind. But that's the question we have to ask. Am I spectating or am I running the race? Because God didn't redeem me or you for our own selfish needs. He certainly didn't redeem us to be comfortable. I think you can tell by this passage, this guy is extremely uncomfortable. In fact, on the contrary, it says that we will be persecuted for his name. And I think it has something to do with running a race. All right, so um, that's it, and I guess we're, we're going to do a communion now.